Welcome to Curious and Candid, conversations with those in pursuit of more. Today's guest is Brian Johnson. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Appreciate that. Thanks for having me. Yeah, for sure, Brian. So excited to chop it up with you, man. Um, before we uh, take kind of a, a deep dive into your backstory, I want to ask you a few questions. I like to ask all the guests just to kind of get the conversational ball rolling, so to speak. So uh, the first question i like to know is how do you start your day? Do you have any specific routine or ritual you like to stick to on most days and on most mornings? Um, You know, my ritual isn't perfect as, as I would like it to be. Um, but, you know, I like to wake up giving thanks, um, especially over the last couple of years. I really uh, I've gone through some 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 life experiences that I think a lot of people can identify with. A lot of people can't. But, you know, we all have things that happen in our lives. I think that we kind of get through and um, we know that it's not just because of our power, our willpower. Or we're so we're so strong. So I like I like to wake up. Uh, and give thanks because I am a faithful person. I do believe in a higher power. I have, I, I do believe that I have a creator. Um, so I, I, I like to give up, get up and give thanks. And my, my main goal in the morning is that before I get on the Instagram or Twitter, um, you know, before I do anything for myself, I like to give thanks. Um, and I think I do that more often than I don't. Um, and then, you know, just the, the normal ritual, you know, I get up early, my family's still sleeping. Uh, so it's kind of, I don't know, it, it's kind of peaceful because I'm trying to be quiet and move deliberately. So I don't wake my wife or my kids up because it's so early. Um, and then my wife is, you know, she's a morning person, but she doesn't like, she likes to wake up on her own accord. So, so I can stay out of trouble. I, I make sure that I can be as quiet as I can. And it, it kind of, it just allows a peace. I'm not waking up and frantic, you know what I mean? Because I am deliberate in everything that I'm doing, which I think is is great for starting my day. And then I hop in the car, man. And, you know, I got to come here and I got to have energy and enthusiasm to, to train over a hundred guys on a daily basis. Um, and, and usually I'm trying to get here in enough time to get my workout, which is why I get so early because I'm a, I'm a morning lifter uh, for the most part. Um, so I'm I'm leaving so early, so I'm, I'm getting some music to get some blood flow. I stop to the store and get a coffee, uh, and then I come into work and I like to train for the first part of the day. I feel like it it really starts my day one on a positive note. I, I you know all the, the positivity is flowing. Um, I don't have to think about anything that stressed me because I released it all in my either my treadmill run, my bike ride, or you know touching some weight. So. Uh, that's that's usually how I like to start my morning. And then by, by the time it's seven o'clock, I'm in front of a group full of about 40, 50 uh, football players. So it's on and popping after that. OK, um, now I want to talk to you because uh, for me personally, uh, my faith is something that is the the bedrock and foundation of my life. So um, there's definitely a commonality there. Uh, I. I want you just to share with us because I'm interested in, in just kind of your perspective, but is, is faith something that was foundational for you uh, growing up? Is it something that you kind of uh, adopted or, or leaned into later in life? And how has your faith maybe um, uh, transformed or changed over the years? Because sometimes when some of us grow up in faith and we're forced uh, to go to church or whatever, 
a lot of us can tend to walk away from that. Mm -hmm. And then some of us maybe rediscover that faith later on. And some people fortunately or unfortunately don't, but kind of tell us your faith story. Cause I'm, I'm curious about that, Brian, please. Well, growing up, I mean, we were in church every Sunday. Um, I was involved even as a, a young, a kid uh, on the youth usher board, the youth choir. My mother and my father emphasized us going to church. My grandfather was a deacon. Uh, my dad was a deacon. So it, other than, you know, me calling them dad, we were out in public anywhere with my grandfather or, or with my dad. It was, hey, Deacon Johnson, uh, to the point where that's my son's name. My son's name is Deacon Johnson. Uh, but because we don't really have, we don't do the junior, the second, the third. So, you know, a way to kind of commemorate my father and my grandfather, um, I named my son Deacon, uh, Deacon Johnson. So it's just, it's just one of those things that it, it'll always stick. And that's kind of where my faith began, man. We were in church, um, Sunday school. I don't, you know, I, I guess you can say it was forced because, I didn't have a choice when I was young, whether we were going to church or not. We were, we were, that was just automatic. Um, I will say as I got older, um, my faith hasn't changed. I don't think it's grown or it's, uh, you know, decreased at all. I do think I, I have realized that I have to rely more on my faith and my understanding and people that I trust understanding uh, because there are false prophets, there are people who whose intentions aren't great, and, and and they don't have to be perfect. They're human beings, so they weren't made to be perfect. None of us were. Uh, so I'd rather just rely on my own understanding uh, than mm -hmm. other people's, because you know there are manipulators and people out there that they they won't tell you the truth. They'll tell you the truth based off of what will benefit them. Uh, so I I don't find myself in church as much. I will say that when I am going to church, when there is a place that I feel like there's community and 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 that there are people that care for everybody else in there, that I do my weeks go better, you know, things, you know, I have a more positive outlook. Um, so that is something that I am in search for. But, you know, I know that everything that happens to me in my life is because there is a plan that's beyond mine, that's greater than my plan. Um, and I'm fine with that because I know that there are decisions in, that I will make or places that I will go that wouldn't benefit me. And I've known the older I get, the more I realize is that uh, my faith is what guides me in the right direction all the time. Uh, so instead of, you know, I've gotten to the point now where instead of me asking God for specific things, especially when it comes to like a job or a location or anything like that, I just ask him to guide my footsteps because I know that wherever I end up is because that's where he wants me and not where I want to be. Um, so that's where my faith gives me. It gives me the confidence knowing that I'm always going to be put in the right situation in the right place. Whether it's hard, whether it's easy, I know that I'm going to be able to get through it because, you know, God doesn't put anything else on us that we can't bear. Excellent, man. Thanks, thanks for touching on that. I appreciate that, Brian. For some people, that's just, you know, maybe off topic, but uh, yeah, my podcast and we get to talk about whatever. You get to talk about whatever you want, no doubt. That's what it's all about. Yeah, cool. Awesome, man. So uh, kind of the next question here in terms of 
conversational starter questions, Brian. Um, do you have a favorite book? Um, and if you do listen to podcasts, do you have a favorite podcast? If there's more than one, if there's five, ten, you just share as much as you like in that regard. You know, man, I, I love podcasts. It's just hard for me to sit and live like the only time I really get to sit and listen to anything is in my car. Uh, on the way to work, you know, I, I have like a 30 minute commute. I'm in the Bay. So I live, you know, 11, 12 miles away from my actually work. So in the mornings, like I said, I'm either on the phone with my parents because they're on the East Coast. So it's a little later in the day for them. Um, and that's usually where we get to have conversations because I have the time to sit and talk on the phone for more than just five or 10 minutes. Um, and then on the way home, I'm in traffic. So I'm either having another conver phone conversation or sometimes I get to listen to music. Um, I, you know, I do, I always tell myself, man, I want you to got to listen to more podcasts, but it's just hard to be consistent when like, this is really the only time I can talk because when I go home, the phone has to go away. I have a seven year old, an eight year old and a wife that I have to give my attention to because like I said, I haven't seen them since the night before. Uh, so all my attention has to go to my family at that point. Uh, and I can, trust me, I can do a way better job of that. Putting down the phone and social media and texting could uh, definitely take more of a backseat. Um, so I don't find myself listening to podcasts unless there's just a subject that I see on social media that just pops out. I probably have about 20, 30 different ones saved because more I'm just looking for what the different subjects, um, more than just listening to one podcast all the time. Um, favorite book, man, is this, you know, most of my favorite books are probably, well, I did like Phil Jackson's Six Rings. Um, that was huge. Uh, Mike Tyson's Undisputed. I know he's a very controversial uh, figure, but man, I tell you, looking into other people's lives, sometimes you get a little different perspective for who they are and different things that they happen in their life, whether you agree or disagree with them, we all have our journey. Um, but his book um, touched on so many things about self-talk and maybe some of the things in his past that influenced what he did and, and who he was, especially in his prime. You get a really good outlook on uh, his life and overcoming certain things. And, and even, you know, when he met a certain individual and they teach, taught him about self-talk, and, 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 um, uh, you know, we, we, we always are saying, uh, there's strength in the power in the tongue and the word and, and, and what you telling yourself on a daily basis is very important. And I got a huge outlook from him in, um, in that book. Um, and then like right now I'm just, I'm reading James Smith's book, the, the governing dynamics uh, of the NFL is kind of his perspective on, on how organizations should operate. I mean, you, if you know James Smith or read any of his stuff, it's, it's a lot of complicated topics in there. You just got to kind of sort your way and, and pick your way through. Um, and that's why I think I like reading his stuff so much, because you're still going to find something that's going to interest you a lot. And he has so much information and so much perspective. So that's I'm kind of in the weeds with that right now. Uh, so that's those are right. Those are some of the books that kind of influence what I do on a daily and, and how I operate. Um, just in my, you know, what I'm telling my players and, and trying to get them to, you know, that motivated motivation and a lot of their actions to become intrinsic, um, and relying on themselves to, to get up and be ready to go. Excellent. Nice. Love it. Okay. In the last year, 
Um, we just kind of, obviously we're fresh into February, so we're early into a new year, but yeah. in the last, uh, in the last year or so, uh, Brian, what life lesson have you been taught or did you learn? If you don't mind Ooh. sharing that with us, man, <laughs> hard to limit it to just one. It is hard to limit it, but there, you know, the biggest lesson, uh, so I'm, it's February 3rd. So February 16th, I'll be six months out of a kidney transplant. Mm. So of course, a lot of lessons with dealing with kidney failure and, and being on dialysis. I think the biggest life lesson that I learned is that however, if you had to put a measure of how strong you are and what you can get yourself through, um, you have to times it by like a hundred. Uh, because if you would have told me 10 years ago that at one point that I would have, I would be in kidney failure uh, in the middle of a, a winter off season for a power five football organization. Uh, and that I would be put on dialysis and have to do it every night while I'm sleeping at home, have to wake up, disconnect from the machine, which is a very tedious process uh, because it's a very sterile process. Um, get up, get dressed, still be deliberate so I don't wake my wife up, which was very hard at that time, uh, and then be to work on time for a, a seven o'clock group after a, a nine hour treatment, uh, be in, and a 30 minute drive and be on time for work for a seven o'clock group and be able to power through a seven o'clock group, a nine o'clock group where you're training athletes um, and having to endure that all the way through basically January, and to August, when I got my uh, transplant, I would have said that you were crazy, that I wouldn't have been able to do that. But I was able to do it, one, because it was important for me. I, I take my job very serious. It's one of the uh, top five or six most important things in my life just because I do love it. I have a passion for it. Uh, and also to provide for my family, which is, you know, top two. So, um that that's probably the biggest life life lesson, man. If 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 it's important to you, you have passion. If it means something to you, the 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 there it's limitless. You can push yourself, and you can go through anything. And that's why I kind of alluded to earlier that God doesn't put anything on us that we can't bear. And then to find out, you know, a couple months after surgery that there was a cancerous tumor in that kidney that was the right kidney that was the one that they had to take out are the size of an egg. So it was more than just kidney failure going on. There was, uh, you know, cancer uh, that had been in there for a long time. They just didn't know what it was. Um, so that's probably the biggest life lesson that I had, man. And, 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 and also that in those times, you really find out who loves and who cares about you most uh, because my wife is the one who donated her kidney to me, which is why, how I could get the transplant. So, uh, you get a you get even a different aspect on what true love really is, and the people that 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 care about you most, what they're willing to do for you, um, and it even increases what you would do for them, or even you know what I mean. Like you say, yeah, I, I die for my family. That's not even a question. But it's like, can I do more? <laughs> you know what I mean? And 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 leaving a legacy, and 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 if something did happen to me, to make sure that that they be okay, no matter whether I was living or dead or whatever the circumstance was that my family would be taken care of regardless. 
Wow. Okay. Well, we're going to get into that a little bit more uh, as we get into your backstory, Brian, because I, I want to, I want to pull back a couple layers with that. Cause obviously that's a huge life yeah. event. And um, I I'm, I'm sure there's more that you would like to share about that, but before we kind of get to that point, um, you are, you know, uh, into the strength and conditioning world. Uh, like you said, power five, you're at uh, university of California. Yeah. So big time stuff. Um, so the question is, is do you have a favorite quote mantra word, but because of your job and your career, um, and, and if you do have one personally for yourself, that's fine. But is there maybe a, a, a quote mantra word or, or a phrase that you try to instill within your athletes and with, within the culture of the weight room there at the U university of Cal. And then if there is something maybe more per personable for you, please yeah. share that. Well, the one, the one quote that, I mean, it probably touched me back in high school was Dr. King's uh, quote, the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in comfort and convenience, but where he stands during times of uh, controversy. Um, that kind of summed up my life. And I think if anybody looked back far, you know, long enough or it was honest with themselves, it would, uh, you know, describe their life as well. Because there are times where I've looked for comfort. There are times where that's all I wanted. There are times that... When I got in that situation, I, 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 I seeked where comfort was. And then there were times where I learned to, to, to seek, the, take the hard path, to look for when it was inconvenient, when it would be tough, when it'd be hard. And I can com compare and contrast where I ended up after those taking those two paths. Um, and now that, you know, where I am now, there are there going to be a balance of both. You know what I'm saying? You have to have a balance of both. There was a time where I'm like, no, that you can, you only get, you always have to take the path of least resistance. That's the only path to ever take. And now going through what I just talked about earlier, um, no, nah, you need a little bit of both, man. There has to be times where sometimes you're comfortable, where you can slow down and calm down and recharge, um, so you can be at your best. So when you do have to take on that tough path, you have the energy, you have the confidence. You know, you have the strength to to endure whatever it is that you're going to get through. And if it's just, you know, pounding, pounding, pounding all the time, you just beat yourself to the ground where you're not a use to yourself or anybody else. Uh, so that's why I think that quote really resounded with me um, at a young age. And it still resounds now like it's it's a great lesson. And it's one thing I definitely try to pass on to everything is that, yes, seek the, the seek that path of least resistance, please. But. You also have to be aware when it's time to take that path of, of comfort and 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 you know you could just be a little free and, and and bring some peace to your life. And sometimes it's you gotta take both paths within a day or week or whatever it has to be. You have to be aware of when it's time to slow down and and, and be okay with it. Mm, love that. Beautiful, Brian. Okay. Um let's uh let's let's transition. Let's jump into your backstory. I I wanna know, I'm curious to know. Um where you actually like physically grew up okay. and then just talk to us about those younger years. I'm assuming, uh, you know, sports athletics was a big part of your life. You mentioned yep. your, uh, uh church uh, involvement and activities. Yep. Um, talk to us about your childhood. Where'd you grow up siblings? What was life like for you? Um, paint yep. that picture for us, Brian, please. Um, yeah, I was, I'm, I'm from Tallahassee, Florida. Uh, grew up with my mother and my father. I had a younger sister, She's two years, eight months uh, behind me. Um, so I was a big brother. I always, you know, tell everybody because my son is older than my daughter now. And, 
you know, big brothers can be hard on little sisters sometimes. I know me and my son were hard on our little sisters, but I tell everybody that was kind of the beginning of me learning how to be a leader. <laughs> uh, but, um, man, my, you know, my parents were involved in everything that we did. Um, my dad, like I said, he was a deacon in the church, so church was a huge part of our life. Um, my dad was a hard worker. My mother was a hard worker. So, you know, we got to see what it looked like for both of our parents to be at work. And, you know, at an early age, I think I was we were at home and we would have to take care of ourselves for a couple of hours. Uh, sometimes after school, as we got older, you know, learn how to cook. We would have to take the, the public transportation home because they'd be busy at work. So, you know, we got to grow up and be learn to be responsible, you know, especially like once I got into middle school, um, learn how to be responsible, crossing major streets to get to the bus stop. Uh, getting there on time to make sure the bus doesn't leave you. There were times where the bus would just drive right by you. We'd have to walk home. I would have to take care of my little sister because she'd be scared. And uh, So responsibility was always ingrained, you know, being a responsible person, uh, taking accountability, um, having common sense. My dad always, if I did anything that exhibit something other than common sense, he would let me know and he'd teach me what I should have done. Um, so I definitely appreciate that because I do pride myself on having common sense. And the more people you meet, you find out that common sense isn't so common. Uh, so those are the things I learned, man. Saturdays weren't days of sleep in for me growing up. It was time to get outside and do yard work. So waking up six, seven o'clock in the morning to go cut grass, to go rake up leaves, uh, you know, clip the hedges. Um so my, you know, my dad raised me to be a worker. He raised me to be responsible. Um, and then, you know, as I grew and started seeing the height and the size, you know, sports became very important, but it didn't come before education uh, and, and getting our homework and all that stuff done. So, uh, you know, my parents came home, the dishes needed to be washed, uh, our homework needed to be done, uh, our rooms needed to be clean, bed needed to be made up in the morning. I mean, that was... That was how, you know, I grew up uh, and that kind of carried on all the way through high school. Once I got very good at athletics, um, my dad wanted me to change school. I went to like a semi-private school at first um, just because it was, it was good education. Uh, but then once athletics became uh, huge in my life and the possibility of college scholarships, I switched over to public school where there was a little more competition. Uh, and then, uh, you know, after that, just kind of took off from there. Tenth grade, um, I, I was the first time I played like tackle football, uh, and then eleventh grade is when I finally got on the field, and then scholarships started rolling in. Uh, my senior year, I think, uh, you know, I had all these recruiters coming to my school, so I probably got a little big head, and then that's when my dad that summer going into my senior year, my dad made me work a construction job. Uh, so, I mean, I got to earn some money, so it was cool, but it was hard work. I mean, I was I was like a landscaper. So it was me and a bunch of cats from Mexico. And, you know, people like to make jokes, but it's not a stereotype. It's true. Like, those guys work, and they do a lot of jobs that a lot of people don't want to do. And I grew a huge respect for them because they were running laps around me. And a lot of the work that we were doing was the first time I'd done it, like grading the ground so you could create drainage and rain and and then and, and land sod. And first you had to clean up the site. So those dudes were running laps around me. 
Uh, but it was very humbling. And there was a point where I wanted to quit. I didn't want to do it. And my dad would not let me quit. Um, and that became very uh, pro profound in, a, in a later in life because, you know, he would remind me, well, hey, you know, you don't want to be in college. You don't want to do college football. It's too hard. You come on back here and, you know, you can go to the construction job for the rest of your life, you know, and, and that's just not what I want to do. I'm not saying that it's not a commendable uh, path to take. I, I have a huge respect for people that are out there doing construction and building things and because it's not easy, uh, but it is very rewarding to see a finished product. And we need them just like we need doctors and lawyers and everybody else. Uh, but that's just not what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a professional football player. Um, so it, it gave me a lot of perspective is having that job that summer and in, in the heat, working hard, uh, day in, day out, getting home after a 13 hour day. Wasn't, I mean, I was only making maybe $7 and 50 cents an hour. It wasn't a lot of money, but it was, it was good money. I was 17 years old, so it wasn't terrible. Um, I, I ended up getting a paint job on my car and some rims for it. So a new radio, it was an older car. So, you know, it, there was its benefits outside of the stuff that I can see now as a grown-up. I didn't see that stuff when I was actually doing it at the time. Um, and then, you know, I ended up signing a scholarship to go play at LSU for Nick Saban, uh, which is a, a whole nother thing, an, an enlightening experience that you don't feel the enlightenment until the, the true, until later on in life or until you get around people that weren't brought up in the same building that I was at LSU, you know what I mean? Uh, so that was a great experience. And then he left to go to the NFL. And then I had Les Miles, who was, you know, a different approach to things. But life didn't get easier when Les Miles got to LSU. Um, and then that's never going to happen at LSU just because of the place and the competition and the, the expectations and the standards at that place are, you know, you can't you can't get comfortable because once you do, you either you're not going to get on the field or someone's going to take your position. It's just what it is. Uh, very competitive. Uh, so that was huge in shaping me as well as, you know, being a part of that comp competitive environment day in and day out and those high standards. And, you know, it wasn't just the strength staff that held us to those high standards. It was the equipment staff, the sports medicine staff, uh, our, our coaches, everybody in the building was on the same page. And when you're in one of those organizations, I mean, it's, it's very pressure filled on, the, on a daily basis. Um, and we won a national championship, uh, one conference, won a conference championship, competed in another conference championship in my time there. I want to say my record in the five years was like 54 and 13. So we won a lot of football games. And uh, that's where I, you know, kind of fell in love with the process of winning championships. You know, everybody thinks that, oh, you know, you're talking about this championship, which was 20 years ago this year. Um, you know, it's 20 years ago. You did that 20 years ago. But it's like, yeah, but ever since then, there's only been 20 people that have done it, 20 teams that have done it, uh, one. And two, it's not the championship. My rings are in a box. I really don't – I rarely bring them out. Um, usually my kids are kind of playing with them now. Um, the thing that I take most pride in is the process of winning the championship and how I became – how I went from one type of person – to another type of person and, and realizing that growth because my freshman year at LSU, I had a very low GPA. I couldn't pass my conditioning test. College was hard for me. College, being a student athlete at the collegiate level was very hard for me my freshman year. And then 
that's when my dad told me, well, come on home and I can you can go back and do the construction job. And that's when I realized, all right, like it's time to wake up and grow up. Mm-hmm. And uh, to see where I went from that point in that conversation, I had a conversation with Nick Saban that wasn't as nice as my dad's conversation. Uh, but between that conversation with Coach Saban, the conversation with my dad, and then watching the transition and me seeing what I'm actually capable of in the class classroom, in the weight room, on the game field, uh, was huge for me. Uh, it was kind of, of of an awakening, you know. Um, and 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 I and, and that's why that's why I am the way I am today. I, it's who I am. I, I have very high standards for everyone that I'm around. They know that I do. I make it very clear that I do. And I, I just I know another way because I did it. I lived the other way and I didn't like the results. I didn't like who I was. I didn't like where I was. Uh, And then when I became and and, and found this other way, I'm very happy with that way. It's hard. It's tedious. It's exhausting sometimes. But I can go to sleep at night knowing that I gave it everything that I had. Um, And now coming out of this most recent transition and understanding that you need to have peace and you need to relax. I think that I'm even better when I'm going and I'm at it uh, because I can find those times of peace. So college taught me that a lot. College taught me that. And then, you know, some of my early years in the NFL, you know, going as an undrafted free agent to the Arizona Cardinals. And I mean, playing some of the best football that I've ever played in my life, having some of the best coaching I'd ever had in my life and then getting cut and thinking, man, like I, I did my best and I got cut, but am I going to quit? Am I going to lay down or am I going to try to do it again? And then I got picked up uh, by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and um, wasn't as focused because I was close to home. There were a lot of people in Tampa that I knew. Uh, The culture was a little different than what I was used to at the time. And I was just having a good time. You know what I mean? And my football sucked. I was awful. I was terrible. I deserved I probably should have been cut before I was cut. And when I got cut, I knew it. I was like, I deserve to be cut. Um, And that's why then I was able to go to Baltimore, uh, the Ravens on a team with Ray Lewis and Ed Reed and all of those dudes and and coached by John Harbaugh. Uh, Ozzie Newsom was the GM at that time. You know what I mean? And and being in that building reminded me a lot of college. The, the, The expectations and the standards were very high. Uh, if you weren't a fighter, if you weren't a grinder, you were not going to make it in that building. So I felt like I was in a very comfortable place, man. I was good. Like, I'm going to be pushed every day. That's comfort to me is being pushed because I know the best is coming out of me. And I feel at home because that's what I came from in college. Even even at home growing up, like it wasn't as pressure filled, but there was a sense of urgency in making sure that you were doing things the right way or you were going to know about it. So uh, I, I felt good when I went to Baltimore. And then when I had an opportunity to probably fight for a position to fight during the 53 man roster, I, I got a back injury and not just a regular back injury. I mean, I had nerve irritation. My leg would fall asleep. I mean, I, I get down in my stance and couldn't even push out of my stance. Uh, so I ended up having a back surgery. And then that's kind of the business of the NFL, along with the injury, kind of took it out of me. And then that's when I realized I needed to move on to the next part of my life. And I felt, I felt good about it. I mean, I miss football, trust me, but I wasn't the same after that surgery and after rehab, I wasn't the same. Um, and I knew that I wasn't going to give what was going to be required. So I knew that it was time for me to shut it down. Cause I'd be doing myself a disservice and wasting 
uh, NFL organization's time, and I just didn't want to do that. Um, so I wanted to find something that I could give a lot to and that I could receive a lot back. Um, I was getting into coaching. So my first job in 2010 was at Florida State because after surgery, I moved home. Uh, my parents were actually leaving Tallahassee and moved. They moved to Orlando around the same time. But Jimbo Fisher was my offensive coordinator at LSU. He had just gotten a head coaching job at Florida State. So I was just hanging around. And then he asked me, man, what do you want to do? And I said, man, I want to stop playing football. I want to get into coaching. He said, well, what do you want to coach? Like, I don't know if I want to be a position coach or I want to be in the weight room. So he was like, well, I can get you something right now in the weight room. You're going to start at the bottom of the totem pole. You're not going to be making a lot of money, but it's going to be an opportunity. I said, coach, that's all I want. And so I was okay making $19,000 a year, no benefits. You know, I, I I felt like I did a decent job, you know, saving my money when I did play. So I was able to, you know, buy a condo and and live, you know, with what I needed with a, along with the $19,000 a year salary. Um, and I just grinded, man. I put in work. I, just, I don't, I don't, I don't think I slept, uh, but it, 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 it benefited me because two years after being at Florida state, I was hired as a head strength coach at the age of 27 at the university of Akron, uh, which was crazy because I got there and I realized I was not ready to be a head strength coach was not ready at all. I was not certified. I did not have the education. I did not have the experience. People were just okay recommending me and hiring me because of my presence and because they knew that one thing Brian was going to do was going to work. So that never changed, but I I knew that I wasn't ready and I didn't want to do a disservice to those kids. They they deserve somebody that was ready to to do it. Um, And if you would have asked them, they probably would have felt like I was, but they don't, you know, kids don't know. I knew, I knew that I wasn't ready. So I took an assistant job at LSU under my mentor, one of my mentors and my college strength coach, Tommy Moffitt. Um, and that was, you know, it was great because I knew a lot of what we did in college. And that was some of what he did uh, when I was working there. But there were a lot of things that he progressed and changed, which was great to see. But even just now seeing the kind of the background or the, the behind the scenes view of what happens actually once the guys come into the weight room and being a part of that was a huge learning experience. Um, but even being there, was a, it was just a lot of familiarity. It was a lot of comfort. It was a lot of, I know what to expect. I know all this stuff because I did it to a certain extent. You know what I mean? So I needed to, and I knew all the people there. He was there, a lot of, some of the same coaches that were there when I played. A lot of the support staff that was there when I played, um, administrative people there when I played. So I was comfortable, right? And I had to seek something new to learn and grow beyond what I already experienced. Uh, so that's when I got a job with the San Francisco 49ers and worked for Marco Uyama. Hmm. Uh, if you know anything about Marco Uyama, man, he's a dude, man. He's a real guy. He's a, he's a real cat, and I felt at home with him because he's just like everybody else that got me to the next point in life. He pushed me to be better. He taught me. He opened my eyes to the profession and how to handle myself myself from a business standpoint and being in the NFL and handling my you know with the players and all these different personalities and these guys that make more money than you uh, and a range of guys from you know. 22 23 to 35 you know what i mean that's different than 18 to 22 in college you're talking about a completely different 
you know, training age, biological age. Uh, so you, you definitely have to be able to individualize things for those guys, which helped me individualize things for the young guys based off not necessarily age, sometimes age, but more so limitations and deficiencies that those guys have. Uh, so that was an eye opener. Uh, and I think that's what prepared me. I felt like I was ready to be a head strength coach after being with Coach Moffitt for three years as a coach, being under Marco Wiano for two years. Uh, I got an assistant job at Texas A&M uh, under head coach uh, Sumlin. Mark Hockey was the uh, head strength coach at the time. I spent a year there. Coach Sumlin got fired after winning seven games, but that's the SEC. You know how that goes. You win 10 games and they'll fire you. Uh, and then he got the head job at University of Arizona and brought me from an assistant role at Texas A&M to a head job at University of Arizona, my first power five head job. Um, I, I Akron was the first time I was hired as a head strength coach, but I don't consider it my first head job. One, because I shouldn't have been hired as a head strength coach. And then two, it was only for four months. I, you know, So my true first head job was University of Akron. Mm -hmm. uh, spent three years there. And then now going into my fourth year at uh, University of California. Excellent. Okay. So some things that I want to kind of uh, pull back, uh, Brian, first of all, I want to take a, a big step back to like your, your younger years, childhood, high school, um, what have you, were there any, because obviously you grew up, uh, you, you played football, you, you were an athlete. Um, were there any like professional athletes that you really admired or looked up to when you were younger? If so, um, who, who are some of those, uh, those athletes? So first, the first, as a, as a young kid, the first athlete I think that I can kind of really paid attention to, I was watching the NFL game. I don't remember what game it was, but they were showing highlights of Deacon Jones, which is another reason why my son's name is Deacon. And Deacon Jones, I get, they were talking about the head slap that Deacon Jones had. And I mean, he was just a big mean cat and he come off the line and Wow, he just hit people in the head. Now, you know, I mean, you know, you can't do that now and you don't want to be hitting people in the head. But as a kid, I'm, you know, that's loves football. I'm like, man, that's like, it, it, you know what I mean? It's violent. It's, you know, when you think of football, you especially before we knew what concussions were and all that other stuff, you just love the violence and the aggression of the game. And to me, that was just like the most aggressive dude that I had ever seen. Uh, so first it was Deacon Jones and then, and then second, Reggie White, man. Reggie White was going out there throwing offensive linemen all over the place. Um, and then you you got you, you see clips of him preaching at the pulpit in church. I'm like, yeah, that's that's my guy right there. You know what I'm saying? Because there was so much I was able to identify with. And, you know, growing up, I, you know, at first I wanted to be a wide receiver. And then the bigger I got, I wanted to be a defensive lineman watching watching Reggie White. And then this dude, every time he talked, he just had something profound to say. He was just so aggressive and physical. So it was okay to be, you know, both. Uh, so those two were probably the, the, the ones that I liked to watch the most. Now, of course, I love like Jerry Rice and, and Randy Moss just because of their athletic ability. Uh, Deion Sanders going to Florida State. Uh, and then being in Tallahassee, so Derrick Brooks and Warwick Dunn, even though the, the mm -hmm. University of Florida players, because my mom graduated from the University of Florida, my dad graduated from Florida State. So that was a big rivalry. Um, my dad had season tickets, so we went to all the Florida State games. Well, most of the Florida State games, but we always went to Florida State, Florida, whether it was in Tallahassee 
or whether it was in Gainesville because my parents grew up in Ocala, Florida, which is 30 minutes south of Gainesville. So it was like we get to go see our grandparents. We get to go see Florida, Florida State play. And then Tallahassee, just a three and a half hour drive away. So, you know, we were always at those games. So all those, I mean, war done. I'm not worried about, uh, uh, man, I'm, I'm at a kind of a brain fart, but uh, Ward, the quarterback of Florida State, uh, you know what I'm saying, winning the Heisman, Danny Werfel at Florida, Ike Hilliard, uh, Fred Taylor. I can go – like, those guys, I just love watching them, man. I was just good football, and all of them ended up being great pros. I mean, Ward went to go play uh, basketball for, what, 15, 16 years after winning the Heisman as a quarterback at Florida State. So you're talking about great athletes – so that's, you know, that's why athletics was so big, because I was from a place where it was it was everywhere. You know what I mean? Yeah. So um, just watching those guys just made me want to want to do that. I want to be on TV. I want to be playing in stadiums where you had hundreds of thousands of people cheering for you on TV and in the stands. Yeah. Love it, man. Um, so you mentioned uh, um, wanting to be a receiver and then, you know, did you eventually switch over to uh, being a defensive player? And then is that what you kind of continue to do all the way uh, when you were in the NFL or what, what was the position? Nah, so uh, I wanted to be a defensive player uh, and I was a really good basketball player at the time, um, but I stopped growing up, started growing out. So, uh, you know, I six, four, but basketball I, I wanted to play the five right I wanted to be like Shaq Elijah Patrick Ewing I only got the six four so I had a post-up game I had a nice little turnaround jumper but you can't do that on them on, you get to high school now you got six 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 seven six eight dudes you can't I didn't have anything so then it was football when I left the private school that I was at and went to the public school um I got put in offensive line because they didn't have any kids my size at the time so Everyone said, you look like a D lineman. You're athletic enough to be a D lineman. Like, I was really athletic, but the team need was for me to play offensive line in high school. So I didn't care. I just wanted to play football. So I was with it. And my offensive line coach, who's now my best friend, we talk four or five times a week. Uh, my offensive line coach, like, he was, I didn't, I couldn't stand him, but he was a good coach. So, I mean, he was hard on me. He pushed me. You know what I mean? I guess that's another person I will say in my young age really had a lot of influence on me, uh, Coach McFarlane, just because, you know, he didn't care. Like, I don't care how good you are. And I, and, and really, when I first got there, I kind of I sucked because I just never played offensive line. But he taught me a lot. He was a very technical coach. Um, so even going to college, like, college coach was like, man, technique-wise, you're, you're on point because, you know, that's – that's kind of that's the kind of coach that he was. Um, so went from wide receiver, basketball player to one to play D line because those are the guys I looked up to the most to play an offensive line in high school, college, and in the NFL. So you you were an offensive lineman then, huh? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Very cool. Okay. Now um, let's let's touch on um, you as an athlete, and then I want to transition into you being a coach and, and okay. all the strength and conditioning stuff that you've, you've kind of unpacked it, but I just, again, want to pull back some of those layers and yeah. get some of the, the gems of, of your life experience up to this point, Brian. So um, as an athlete, uh, let, let's talk, I want to talk about 
kind of the the you mentioned a little bit about having a lot of recruiters come to your school uh, to to do whatever they do to uh, get uh, student athletes to come to their college. Um, walk us through that experience a little bit. You said you maybe got a little bit big headed, you know, yeah. dad had you do that construction job, but what was it like back then, um, you know, for you as a teenager to have all these, uh, recruiters coming to you to talk to you, walk, walk us through that experience. Did yeah. you learn anything going through that experience? And then why did you choose LSU? Man, it was a little overwhelming because, it just it kept growing and growing and growing. So you got to imagine getting like 10 pieces of mail every day from all these different schools. You have to fill out all these like questionnaires so they can know like height, size, all this other stuff. Um, because I think at that time, it was just a huge database of all these high school players. And then they're sending you the stuff so they can kind of narrow down who you are and if they're interested in you based off just measurements and, you know, where you're from and all that other stuff. Uh, so it was just it was kind of overwhelming. And then now they can call. And now every night I'm getting three, four five calls from different coaches. And I'm talking to them. My parents are talking to them. So it became a lot. Uh, and then now they can come visit you. So getting pulled out of class to come. And in the South, football is huge. So high schools and, and people, they, they love that. that. Oh, we have a kid that is highly recruited. He's you know, he's gonna, he's bringing attention to our school. So I would get pulled out of class. And then now all of my classmates are seeing this. So now, you know, kind of the prestige of being a highly recruited athlete and all these schools that they're watching on TV and competing for national championships, well-known schools, the Tennessee's, the Florida State, the Florida, the Miami's, the LSU's, and all these people are coming and they're coming to see me. They're coming to talk to me. Um, you know, you just kind of become a big deal or whatever in high school. Um, so that's probably where the big head came is because I was just getting all this attention and going to these camps and getting more attention and uh, people. And then you just kind of notice like my coaches and my parents doing a little bit more to keep me grounded, you know, but a 17, 18 year old kid, like you start getting that attention, you start feeling good, which you should. It's an accomplishment. But, you know, that age is hard to stay grounded and stay focused and all those other things just because especially if you've never ex experienced them and you're living out a dream you know what I mean like I told you I grew up watching Florida State and Florida and the Miamis you know I have a cousin that's in the Miami Hall of Fame uh, University of Miami Hall of Fame so uh, another cousin that played at FAMU HBCU right there in Tallahassee very prestigious university um, that went on to play 10 years in the NFL and was an offensive lineman. So now it's like, it's my, and they're, they're all older than me. So it's like, now it's my turn. I had a, another cousin from Miami that was a big time wide receiver in Miami. He went to go play at the University of, of Miami, Ohio. So like, it's my turn. And now I get to be the one in the family that's going to, you know, to play college and, and hopefully make it to the NFL. So it was overwhelming, but it was very exciting. And all my attention was just focused towards just, that then you go on visits and I took all five visits so I visited North Carolina NC State Clemson LSU and Arkansas Arkansas I was being recruited by the linebackers coach Chris Vaughn who's now a scout for the Dallas Cowboys very good dude he played football at my high school um, you know LSU and Nick Saban come on like who's <laughs> and then uh Clemson I mean, Clemson was just a five-hour drive from Tallahassee. 
cute school, great fan base, great tradition and history. Uh, and then North Carolina, huge academic school, NC State as well. Watching those two teams play Florida State all the time, so there was a lot of familiarity there. Um, so I visited all five of those schools and going to LSU and sitting down with Nick Saban. And, you know, there, there were things that I loved about it. I mean, I went during a game. I went during an Auburn game. Uh, it was a year, my senior year, 9-11 happened, uh, which was very unfortunate. Uh, but the LSU-Auburn game got pushed back to the end of the season. It was that weekend when all they canceled all college football that weekend. So the last game of the season, and that's when I visited. And come to find out, that game was to win the SEC West and go play in the SEC Championship. So you just think about – now, I grew up going to Florida State football games, and there's nothing better than Dope Campbell Stadium, mm-hmm. all right, on a Saturday, the tailgating – you know, they start that Seminole chop, man. You, It is amazing, all right? M- me, my mom, my dad, my sister are in Baton Rouge on game day. And we're like, what is going on here? You know what I'm saying? Like, we couldn't compare the experience at Tallahassee to what was going on in Baton Rouge. And, you know, if there are any Florida State fans listening, they're probably mad at me. But I grew up in Tallahassee. I went to Florida State games. It's not, it's not comparable at the time. It was not even close. And then the first play of the game, like Nick Saban kicks an onside kick and, the, and, and LSU recovers it. And I'm talking about the crowd. You couldn't even hear yourself talk to the next person. I, you, I literally would say something to my dad during those big times, and I couldn't hear myself speaking. Um, and then they won the game, and everyone rushed the field. All the recruits got to rush the field. There was a $2 million academic center being built. Like the infrastructure and the things that were being put in place there, just it was crazy. But that that didn't matter to me. I went to Arkansas, had no intentions on going to Arkansas. But like I said, Chris Vaughn was such a good dude and he was a cougar. We went to the same high school. Like, I got to go. I ended up enjoying it. I ended up liking the players, the coaches. Everything was great. But it was far from home. And my parents were like, well, we didn't go on a visit because you said that you were just kind of going to do a favor for the coach. Like, we would have gone. We would want to see. And then they start pulling all these stats about the graduation rates at the time and all this other stuff. And um, obviously, they're looking at things differently than I'm looking at them. And we had a huge – it was a huge deal. I mean, it was a probably about a three-, four-day process of them convincing me that not to go to Arkansas, to go to LSU – to the point where it had to be, no, you're not going to Arkansas. Sorry, I'm not signing the paperwork. So you need to pick either. If you're not going to pick LSU, you better pick somebody else. The North Carolina schools, I needed a class that I hadn't taken. I was like, I'm not taking algebra two my last semester. I'm sorry. I'm just not doing that. It's chill time. <laughs> so the North Carolina schools were out. So then there was Clemson. I'm like, hmm. Then my dad was just like, it's LSU. You're going to LSU. So I'm like, all right, I guess it's LSU. And your parents know best. I mean, I'm a parent now. I get it. At the time, I was a little pissed, but it's exactly what needed to happen. If I would have chosen anything else, I'm not saying it wouldn't have worked out, but the path that I was on and where I am now, the path I'm on now, I wouldn't have changed it for anything in the world to be on that path. So, you know, I'm happy that my parents and my dad had the strength and the power to step in and not be like for a couple of days. 
but 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 uh yeah choosing anything else would have been crazy hmm. okay now i'm sure i'm not the only one that's going to be listening to this brian and wondering so i'm going to ask you you grew up in tallahassee why in the world was an fsu uh on the radar tell us that story there's got to be some story behind that right yeah, well, my dad was always huge. I mean, like even talking to him now, like he he always taught me and my sister to go to leave and go be independent. That was that was his thing. I mean, if there's any lesson that I had to take from my dad growing up, that's probably top two. Um, that he was big on that. And he didn't want me to stay in Tallahassee. He wanted me to get in a new culture around new people, get away from him and my mom because so I wouldn't have this safe place down the road that I could just go to. I needed to learn how to wash my clothes. I needed to learn how to go shopping for myself, cook for myself. You know, there were things that he knew that I needed to do and my sister in order for us to thrive and be adults. And staying in Tallahassee was something that he did not want. Uh, so... FSU never was really in it. Now, the other side of that is that LSU didn't really, I'm sorry, FSU didn't really recruit me either. Um, I think at the time there was a bad stigma on my high school and some guys that might have gone to Florida State in the past um, that I don't really want to get too much into because that's something else. But there wasn't a great relationship between my school and Florida State. Um, and then uh, there was another high school, Lincoln High School, who put out a lot of great football players and at that time pretty much ran the city. Probably now <laughs> uh, they run the city now. You know, my school kind of had their their time, but Lincoln High School had a bunch of guys. And that's kind of where their focus went to. They recruited a bunch of guys from Lincoln. Um, Gabby, you know, it has kind of this stigma, what type of people come from there. But Gabby is a great place. Um, it mm -hmm. developed me more than the, the private school that I did, that I went to, uh, that I started out at. So I, I love Godby High School. Um, and once again, if, even if I wanted to go to Florida State and knowing that they didn't want to come there for whatever reason, I still wouldn't have gone just simply for that because it, for, to us it felt a little disrespectful. Um, but that was really kind of why that happened. I think late they wanted to come on once I committed to LSU. The Florida schools really didn't give me a lot of respect. Florida didn't. Florida didn't really recruit me or offer me. Miami didn't either. But then all of a sudden now I've committed to LSU and now everybody's trying to jump on the boat. And I'm like, it's too late. <laughs> I'm going to play for Nick Saban. So that's just that was kind of the deal um, with that. And back then I was a little sour about it, whatever. You know, you like you're my school and then LSU wasn't very big in Florida. It's Florida State, Miami or Florida. Period. When I when I signed my letter of intent, I had people at my school coming up to me like, "LSU, we thought you were good." That was that was what they I mean, I had two or three people say that to me. I'm like, "Well, just wait and see. Don't worry about it." Like, clearly you don't know they just won the SEC championship, but whatever. Um, so that was that was that was that. That was Okay. It really wasn't an option. But Florida State wasn't gonna be an option anyway because my dad was not gonna let me go to Florida yeah, State. Yeah, yeah. I, I I think that's great that your dad uh, encouraged you to kind of get away at least for a time because, um, you know, I'm sure now that uh, you know, as as you're obviously an adult and you've lived a lot of life, I I don't think there's 
uh, much else healthier for a young person to kind of get away from their home environment, yeah. to get away from their hometown, to get away from everything that they've always known. Because at some point, we have to kind of discover who we are and we've got to kind okay. of find out what what we're going to do with our life. And if you're always attached to your hometown, your parents and kind of that environment, it's like, it's really hard to, I think, reach your fullest potential as a human being. Is that kind of fair to say, uh, Brian? I, I, I think so. I, I definitely agree with that 100%. But I also feel like there are rare cases where it doesn't. And I've seen that on, only because I think it just depends on your personality and who you are. Like some people I know can detach fully from things. And I think it sometimes depends on our upbringing. Everybody has a different upbringing. They have different adversities that they've gone through as young people. Even there are guys that I coach. I'm like, I couldn't imagine going through that as an adult. I don't know how you did that. And you're still thriving and about to graduate college. You know what I mean? So it's based off different experiences, but that's very rare. I do think it's very rare that you find someone that can really reach their truest potential in a place where comfort is a skip away. I really do. I just think that there are cases where people are at home and there is no comfort. If they go to that side of town, there might be some issues. You know what I mean? Or they might not have that. They might not have that comfort there. Um, or they just been raised to be so detached that they wouldn't depend on that over that air, over there anyway. You know what I mean? So I think it's kind of a case by case thing, but I still do think it's very rare that you can be in a place of comfort that you've known your whole life and truly thrive and find something that you didn't know was there within yourself. Yeah. Great, great, great uh, perspective there. Okay. Um, before we kind of uh, finish up with talking all the strength and conditioning stuff, um, I want to ask you, what was kind of like your wake up moment once you were a D1 SEC athlete? Was there kind of like a moment where like, bro, this is this is different. And then yeah. uh, share with us kind of your wake up moment when you got, uh, you know, on in the NFL and, and was able to partake in that childhood dream. Like, give us a couple wake up moments from from uh, college and then sure. pros. And then we're going to kind of spend the rest of the time talking about strength and conditioning, if that's cool with you, Brian. Okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> wake up moment in college. Sheesh. Um, going against a guy named Chad Lavallee every day in practice. Chad Lavallee was a veteran defense alignment. I mean, as quick as a cat, as strong as a freaking bear. And he just kind of had that real aggressive, like, alpha personality. And this is who I had to practice against every day on scout team. So on scout team, you're trying to give a good look. But then on the other hand, you're not trying to piss everybody off. You know what I'm saying? Like, I can't get a starting guy hurt. Um, but it, going against him made me a lot better. But it was a wake up. Like, this is this is what you're going against every day. It's not high school where you might get some decent competition one game. The next five games is a little dude that you barely even have to work to beat. You know what I'm saying? Like, every week is real. The other wake up moment was probably my first day of workouts. We had 26-110s in the summer uh, in Baton Rouge. Bigs had to run them in 18 seconds, and we had a minute break. So, you know, 26 of those in Baton Rouge heat. It's a little different. I could not come close to getting my time. After about eight to 10, I was done. It was a wrap. <laughs> I was just getting through it at that point. 
so that that woke me up that there are very high expectations and it takes a lot to play college football just to prepare to play college football like playing is not the hard part preparation is the hardest part the preparation is getting you prepared for it to be a little bit easier when you get to it you know what i'm saying so that that was the first wake up call the second was is when i had to go talk to coach saban uh with a third when i had to go talk to coach saban after having the lowest GPA on the team and not doing anything right, not going to class, not going to study hall, just have, you know, life outside of the house. You know what I'm saying? And my dad waking me up every morning to do yard work, you know, uh, you know, having the freedom of being an adult was, I had a little too much fun that first semester of my freshman year. And I had to sit with Nick Saban and have a real conversation and hear him tell me that, Right now, I'm not the person that they recruited to come play there. That if if they had seen what they're seeing now in me, I would have never gotten a scholarship offer, which was which was harsh, but it was I needed to hear it. And that if I didn't straighten out, that I wouldn't be there. And then that's when I had to call my dad and tell him about that conversation. And that's when he he was like, "Well, just come on. If you're not gonna do it, just come on back and save me the embarrassment and just start the construction job." So that was the big one. That was like, all right, we got to straighten. We got to get it together. And it wasn't like it was something I couldn't do. I mean, I ended up getting having a 3.5 or higher for the next three semesters, uh, getting on the dean's list and all that other stuff. So I was capable of doing it. I just wasn't putting the effort towards. Mm-hmm. Uh, the NFL, okay, first wake-up moment in the NFL probably a little different than what most people would think is is that's when I truly realized that what I got at LSU playing for Nick Saban and playing along with the guys that I my teammates is that it's not going that's not going on everywhere in the country right and then Mm -hmm. it was like well this is why we were so so good because these guys over here are comfortable with getting here a minute before the workout starts or a minute before the meeting starts and I'm sitting in my chair 10 minutes before it starts because that was the standard at LSU. You know what I'm saying? That was what Nick Saban required. These dudes are okay kind of coasting through the line. And I'm sprinting through the line because that's what the standard was. So I realized that we were so good because no one else did it the way we did it. It's not that those school, those people didn't run 110s and they didn't have 500 pounds on the bar or that it was hard. It was hard for them, I'm sure. But there were different standards in how we did it. And Coach Moffat, my strength coach, always said, it's not what you do, it's how you do it. There was a different standard to the way that we did things. So when I got in the NFL, I was okay being in the NFL building because I knew at, at, with Nick Saban, when you walked in the building, there was a certain way that you needed to be, a way that you needed to operate in order to survive there. And if you didn't, you weren't going to make it. You were going to transfer out or they were going to send you home, you know? Um, so that was the first wake up moment is, oh, this is why we were good, because these dudes don't even know how to squat a power clean. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, uh, and then uh, the second was is you can be you can be good enough to play in the NFL and never step in a game in the NFL just because everybody's talented and it's not even about talent. It's about what's going on up here. You have to know if you there's no room for mistakes in the NFL. There's 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 no room for it. Not one. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and, and if you do make one mistake, you better be doing something the next couple of plays to make up for it. You know, uh, 
So no matter how good you are, no, no matter how talented you are, you will get cut. <laughs> Even if you think you are right, you you will get cut and they will completely forget about you and they will have your replacement in there. He'll be walking in the door as you're walking out. <laughs> it is what it is. Life It's what it is. Yeah. Uh, so that was that was huge. I was like, all right, I'm in it now. This is this is real life. You know, we didn't get our hand held at, at, in college, but there still was, you know, somebody to bring you along. That ain't happening here. You better bring yourself along or we're going to find somebody that's, that knows how to get in here on time, that knows how to put in the extra film work, the extra weight room work, the extra field work, and we'll pay them. And, and we can get them for maybe cheaper than we got you. So that was the that was huge. That's when I realized what that that was my first look into the real world right there. Cool. Okay, now to kind of bridge the gap between uh, you being an athlete and your your professional career as an athlete, and then now being a professional strength and conditioning coach at a Power Five school, how do you feel like your experiences as an athlete, a high level professional athlete? being where a lot of the athletes at your school want to end up in terms of, you know, being NFL football players. How do you feel like your athletic experiences has helped you maybe build a strong rapport with your athletes and, and how has all of those experiences tied into you being the best version of yourself as a strength and conditioning coach, Brian? Yeah. First and foremost, it builds a little credibility because I've been where they are and I've been where they want to be. Whether I'm coaching a guy that's going to get drafted in the first round, be the first pick of the draft, there's still knowledge. And I didn't get drafted, but there's still knowledge that I have, experiences that I have that he does not have. And I have knowledge and, and information that can help him be the number one draft pick in the draft. You know what I'm saying? He he has a talent, he has a mentality, he has a mindset, but there still could be things that he needs to do to get there. And I have that perspective. Um, so it, it gives me a little credibility, but it also just becomes what and who I am because my job now is to teach them to go off and be the best. Period. Not to be second best, not to be mediocre, but to go off and be the best version of themselves, meaning one, I have to live that. I have to show and prove that every day I'm willing to be the best version of myself, whether I feel like it or not. Whether I wake up, I don't wake up in the morning every day eager to come in here and and, and, and train people at seven o'clock in the morning. There's sometimes I want to sleep in until 8, 8.30. Even if I know I, I, I can't tell you the last time I've done that, but just having the option to, you know what I'm saying? So I have to be able to get myself to be the best version. So I'm my the, the foundation of what I'm doing is is to get that out of the athletes. So they're like I said, because I was held to a high standard, because I still hold myself to a high standard, because I know what I'll get if I'm going the other way. Um, that's what I'm trying to impart on them. And you you have to teach it to people who have no idea which way is which. They don't know the difference. They only probably know one way. And even the ones that do, we're human beings. We're always going to seek out comfort. So trying to get them to understand, you might not realize the ramifications for it right now, but you will at some point. And I'm trying to save you from that. I'm trying to 
get you to at least understand when you see it coming. Well, that's what Coach B was talking about. So that is like the foundational principle of what I do in every day, whether I'm teaching somebody uh, a, a lift, you know, attention and focus the details, uh, get putting forth your best effort, doing extra and not just waiting till it's, you know, mandatory workouts to work on it, um, to constantly seeking improvement in, in everything that you're doing, uh, having routines, uh, preparation, um, being intrinsically motivated, getting yourself up to be able to do it. Those are the things that I'm preaching on every day. So that goes into how I prepare to train them, how I prepare to program for them. Uh, and, 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 and everything that we're going to be doing through the off season. So those things stick after years and years and years of doing it. And just when they leave here, that is who they are. They know that in order for me to be my best, these are the things that I have to do. And it might not be the same as the person over there. I got to find it for myself. So having a variety and then also individualizing to get those people to, to these kids to, to do it and to be motivated to do it and want to do it. And to seek out, the, you know, what's going to make me the best that I possibly can be. Um, so that's that's all those experiences we just talked about is what's gotten me to the point where um, I feel like I can can effectively be in this position. Uh, and, and that's not even talking about the science. That's just talking about foundational principles before we even get to the science. Mm-hmm. How do you feel like um, you you mentioned you have a son and a daughter, mm-hmm. uh, you're a dad. Um, how do you feel like having your own kids has uh, propelled you forward in terms of how you interact with the 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 kids, the youth that you have yeah. under under your tutelage in terms of strength and conditioning? Like, do you feel like there was a big shift when you had your own kids in terms of maybe how you interacted with the kids that walk into your weight room? If so, um, expound on that. First and foremost, it gave me more patience, mm-hmm. right? Because I'm going to have patience with my kids, mm-hmm. um, but my livelihood doesn't re- doesn't uh, re- uh, it's not as dependent right. on how my kids or how fast my kids are grasping the concepts that I'm trying to teach them. These kids are so there's there's a little more sense of urgency, mm-hmm. but there still needs to be a some patience in there but you're still teaching young people the only difference is is i'm getting them at 18 meaning they have 18 years worth of training they have 18 years worth of experience that i have no clue about it could be the same as how i feel or completely different so a little bit patience and learning who you're dealing with one and then having the patience to allow them to go through it and learn on their own and, and pick it up which it's, it's still a short window because I only have this much time. I have to, I have four or five, maybe five years, sometimes three years, if you're really good to get you to this place physically, mentally, um, that could be completely different than what's been going on for the first 18 years of your life. So that's very hard, but having my own kids and just, we're going to be patient with our own, right? That's mm-hmm. just, what it is, we're gonna. I'm gonna tell my son the same thing a million times if I had to, because it, I want him to get it on a million times. If it could take you getting on a million times, then I'm gonna. I want to say it a million times because I. 
I have to, I have to give you that as your father. You didn't have to be here. I brought you here, so to say, right? So I have a little bit more patience, but I, I still have to have a little bit of patience with them. And it also gave me uh, an understanding of the importance of being an extension of where these kids come from and the, 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 the values and the morals and principles that they were brought up with. I need to instill those same type values, the same ones that I would instill on my kids into them. So I'm extensions of their parents' home so they can still get that training. Now, I might not say it the same way your parents are, but I'm sure if I'm working from a place of, of love and honesty, that you'll still feel like you're you're getting some of what your parents gave you because that's part of the developmental process. I, as a coach, I am also responsible for sending you out to the world, whether I like it or not. That's just that's my responsibility. So people are going to remember the experiences that they had under my care. It is what it is. That's what you sign up for when you become a coach. Uh, so having my own kids gave me also gave me that perspective because I'm going to want them to go somewhere with a person that's going to take care of them the same way and have those same values and morals that are going to help spring them forward as well. Right. Because there's going to be a time that I'm not going to have my hand on them as much as I do when they're living in my house. So I want to send them to someone who will have a hand on it and will at least care about them enough to be honest and give them what they need to succeed once they leave their care. So I have to be that person. And, and I've always been like that. But when you have your own kids, you actually feel it a little more. Uh, so I think those are two biggest things that helped me once I had my kids and who I am as a coach right now compared to who I was before. Cool. Love that. Okay. Are you good with uh, about maybe 10, 15 more minutes or we need to wrap yeah, it up? Yeah. 10 minutes for sure. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, okay. In terms of kind of like the profession of strength and conditioning, how do you, uh, how has strength and conditioning changed maybe from the time that you, you know, were in that lower position at Florida state to now yeah. being the head strength and conditioning coach for the football players at university of Cal? Um, how, from your perspective has, strength and conditioning change and you feel like it's for the better for the worse like touch on that please i definitely think it's changed for the better um in the sense that there's more information i know that if coach moffitt my strength coach in college had the information that he has now back then we i don't know if we would have ran 26 110s the first day every summer you know what i'm saying now trust me I know the benefits outside of just the physical part of running 26-110s. There's a mental aspect and being able to push the body past limits that you never knew were there. But does it make a whole lot of sense for an offensive lineman playing football, American football, to run 26-110s, right? Even back then, you could say, well, yeah, you probably could make a great case for my lineman not doing that. But what else could we be doing? Because only thing we knew we were getting out of 110s were you getting some, you know, bioenergetic training for sure. That probably wasn't, well, ain't no probably. It does not align with the sport of football. Uh, but even just the positional demands. Now we have that stuff broken down because we have technology. I know what my what's happening in my linemen in practice. I know what's happening with my linemen and my wide receivers and DBs in practice and training and, and, and games. So I can cater my training towards those things. 
not only do I know what they get, I know what they don't get. Meaning mm-hmm. that I have to give it to them. If I put uh, wearable EMG shorts on my linemen in training, I can control how much glute work they're getting, how much hamstring, how much quad, because I'm I am uh, I'm training the body, I'm building the body, so I know this exercise is intended for activating the quad. I know that this exercise is for proximal hamstring. This exercise is more difficult. I control those things in practice. Those things are controlled. It is. It just is what it is. But then when I, I put my line, uh, uh, EMG shorts on my lineman, and I see that man, he's getting a whole bunch of hamstring activation, get a whole bunch of quad, but my linemen are getting glute activation. Now when they come into the weight room, I know I don't need to hit a whole bunch of hamstrings. I don't need to hit a whole bunch of quad, but I got to make sure I isolate that glute and we get some good glute work because the glute is huge part of what they have to do. They have to hinge and hip extension, right? So those things weren't available back then, but I have those. I can look at a GPS report. I know how many accelerations and decelerations. I know how many times my skill players change direction. I know how much yardage they're getting total distance. I know how much yardage they're getting at five miles per hour. I know how much they're getting at 70% of their max velocity plus. I know how much they're getting at 90% of their max velocity. So these things I can cater their training to. Should every training day look like a football practice? No, that's crazy. That's why we have that term progressive overload. I can pinpoint progressive overload. I can do it from a positional standpoint. I can do it from uh, all the skill, all big skill, all bigs. And I can do it from an individual standpoint because I know what each guy's getting on a daily basis. And I can work backwards from there to make sure that I've overloaded what's going to happen once I hand you off to the coaches and make sure you're prepared. I, I, I can pinpoint uh, over-preparing and I can pinpoint under-preparing. You don't want either one of those, right? Because when you when you have either one, you're getting the same result, injury or decrease in performance, period. But I can find that common ground because I'm looking at data every day. I'm looking at what's happening when I'm training you because I know what's happening when I'm not training you. And that information is valuable. You know, right now, there's big terms of load management and all these other things. They're great terms, but at the end of the day, I know when I can see when there's been a 15 plus percent jump in whatever metric. OK, if it's deceleration, if it's acceleration, if it's a change of direction, hamstring growing. I could even pinpoint where the, the most likely injury could even happen. Uh, not, I, I won't say pinpoint, but at least have an idea. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Whereas before we didn't have an idea because I don't even know how many he's getting. I know how much I program. But we also know at certain intensities come certain types of injuries or your likelihood of injury, depending on the intensity. So they break down the intensity from band one, band two, band three, or velocity band one through eight. Velocity bands one and three aren't going to be a whole lot. But if you're getting a whole lot of eight, then I know we can have some issues because you're hitting 90 plus percent of your max velocity and you had a 20 percent jump. From what you've normally had, now I know, okay, we've got to start intervening, having systems and protocols in place based off what you're seeing on data. So I can go on and on all day about that stuff, but it's definitely the the, 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 the technology and the information, it's not precise. It's not always going to tell you exactly what's going on, but it just gets you closer to having an idea. And if you treat it that way as a tool and not the Bible, right, that this is the word, this is all it is, and this is all I'm sticking to. If you treat it as just a tool in your toolbox, 
it could be very beneficial and help me train guys for what I'm preparing them for and not just doing a bunch of stuff just because it's going to get them tired. Hmm. Okay. Um, I want to, I want to go back to uh, something from the beginning uh, that you brought up and that's, uh, you know, your, your kidney transplant and just kind of that, um, that challenge and how you're navigating it, because that kind of ties into kind of your, I think your whole story in terms of, uh, you know, just there's, there's always going to be uh, road, road bumps, speed bumps, so to speak in all of our lives. And it's, it's not necessarily the type of, of road bump or speed bump, but, but how we kind of overcome that, right. How we yeah. deal with all that and what we take away. So, when when did the the kidney issues kind of come to the surface and can you just kind of walk us through that unfolding and then we'll we'll kind of wrap it up with that if you don't mind Brian please yeah um so 2014 is when I first started having some issues I went to the doctor um all they could say was there was something going on in the kidney no one knew what it was there was a image of some type of mass they couldn't say if it was a tumor if it was a blood clot and it was slowly growing that happened in Baton Rouge when I was working at LSU in 2014. Well, I got a job in San Francisco. So I went to another hospital, another doctor, trying to figure out what it was, could not figure out what it was. At that time, my kidney function wasn't bad. Move again. I'm only at a place for a year, so I didn't really find a doctor. I'm just going through what I'm going through. It affected my life daily, but it, it didn't affect the uh, I wouldn't want to say quality of life, but I wasn't being really affected physically. There was just a sign every day that this something's going on. You know what I mean? It did. It, it wasn't painful. It didn't slow me down. I was still doing my thing. But it was a reminder. Well, fast forward all the way to uh, 2021 when I got to California and think about all these moves and places that I've been since then and different doctors. No one could tell me what's going on. Uh, finally, man, I just had this huge pain in my abdomen. Had to go to, had to finish the work day in excruciating pain. Went to urgent care, get to the hospital. Kidney function is crap. Uh, kidneys inflamed, it's really swollen, so there's a blockage. They put a stent in. I spent some days in the hospital. Now I'm getting flow. It's calming down good kidney function went from really bad to pretty good get out of the hospital just kind of going about my normal day freaking blood work uh the next year 2022 comes around go to get some blood work see the doctor you know it's right before training camp is going to start i'm not going to have time once the season starts so i get all this stuff done when i get when i have a break and my doctor's office calls me and says, you need to go to the hospital. Your kidney function is really bad. So, and they're looking at my creatinine levels. Now, I've always been told that my creatinine levels will be a little higher than most people because I'm, I have so much muscle mass. I mean, when I weighed, you know, 300 pounds, 305, 315 pounds, I would carry 240, 250 pounds of lean mass. Uh, so that was the explanation why sometimes my numbers would be slightly higher. At this point, they're just crazy. So now I'm in kidney failure, um, still creating urine, still had energy, not as much as I'm used to, but it still had way more energy than most people have with kidney failure. 
Now, I'm 37, 38, so I'm still fairly young. Well, I'm still young yeah. compared yeah. to most people who are going through this. So now the, the question is, is why are you going through kidney failure at such a young age? Well, finally find a hospital that's really on it, a really good hospital, really good doctors. They do a genetic test. I have a gene called, it's the APOL1 gene. It's in African-Americans, 13% of African-Americans, that any event to the kidney that could cause kidney disease expedites kidney disease. So that's why it happened at such a young age. Mm -hmm. uh, so fast forward a couple of months, I'm getting blood work, creatinine numbers are increasing. Okay, we need to put you on dialysis. So I chose to do the peritoneal dialysis. I could do it at home. I just, they had to put a tube back to my peritoneal. It pumped fluid in, it sits. It's just a sugar and water, which causes a reaction for the body. Sucks all the toxins that I'm supposed to be, my kidneys supposed to be filtering and sending to my bladder, but they're not working. So it's not happening. So it, 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 it brings the toxins. It, it dwells for a certain amount of time and then it pumps it out and it pumps in new fluid. So this is the nine hour treatment that I had to do every night. The dialysis. Some people go to clinics. With my job, I didn't have that option to be going and spending five hours in the clinic every day. So I did it at home. Uh, very sterile process because your insides are exposed to the outside world. So when I would open up, have to connect to the machine, and go through all this tedious process of bags and pumps and all this other stuff. Um, had to have windows closed, door closed, mask on, no the least amount of germs, and you have to hook up really fast. So, you know, no fans blowing dust and particles and stuff, because you get an infection, it extends your dialysis time by or push back any type of transplant time by six months. They they take you off the list if you get an infection in your body. And once that infection is gone for a certain amount of time, and they put you back on the list. In California, that list, you could your wait time could be 10 years if you don't get a living donor, probably more. I know I've heard of people having to leave California and go to different states, and then they get a transplant like instantly from a donor from a or a deceased donor. Uh, I was very blessed and fortunate that me and my wife were a match. So the big thing for me was okay. Let's get through off season. Let's get to August training camp time. My, my that's my time. That's my in season is off season. So I I I felt better about missing in season than I were off season. So my prayer was August when training camp starts, I get this transplant. Well, around mid to late July, doctors start figuring out that okay, your your wife is a direct match. So we get a date of August. 16th uh and we did we, we went through the process um i get the transplant uh, my wife uh ends up fine it was probably like an eight hour deal for me because they had to go in me detach the kidney make sure that there weren't any tumors anywhere else in my body then they could take her kidney put it put it in me. So I had to get a procedure to disconnect it. They, you know, put the kidney kind of in a bag inside of me, make sure there weren't any tumors. Once they found that out, they kind of put me on ice, went and did a two hour procedure on my wife, came back, put the kidney in me. 
So mine was like an eight hour procedure. Wow. Uh, recovery uh, in the hospital. I was out of it for the most part. It was a big deal because I think the first night I got my body got rid of like 35 pounds of fluid. So I think before surgery, I was like 265. I came when I left the hospital, I was 225. But I lost 35. And they were pumping IVs in me. So I didn't have necessarily 35 pounds of fluid sitting in me. But I had a lot of fluid sitting in me because even now I haven't put that weight back on. I'm like 240, between 245, 250 right now. I haven't, I can't even try to get back up to 265. So that let me know that I was just very swollen and filled with fluid and toxins, uh, even while on dialysis. Um, so that was, that was that process. Recovery was probably to get back to work was like three months. Um, I started like riding a bike and swimming after about uh, a month and a half. And then I probably started lifting, uh, like really lifting, um, not just doing like body weight and calisthenics and, you know, really like dumbbells. I really got to like lifting probably around that three month mark. Um, but I, I still don't do a lot that's heavy. I take long breaks because I don't want to overwhelm the kidney because uh, I only have one now. So my workouts are a little different. Um, it's lighter weight. I, I really, I mean, I probably won't ever do anything like I used to. Uh, but now it's just to stay fit and stay in shape and, try to hold on to this kidney as long as possible now. Awesome. Um, bit, I mean, obviously this is going to be a, a ongoing process, but what, what, what do you feel like? And you kind of, I think kind of touched on it earlier, but I mean, the, the, the giving thanks and the gratitude when you wake up in the morning, I'm sure a lot of that stems from the process yeah. with the, with the kidney and all that, but is there anything sure. else that maybe you, you just want to share with us in terms of, you know, whether it's overcoming the, the kidney stuff or just yeah. you know, stuff that life throws at us, right? Yeah, for sure. I, man, the biggest thing is, is one, just be willing to accept whatever comes. The sooner you accept it, the sooner you can start working to get out of it. The longer you take to accept it, the longer you're just sitting and festering in what is not desired. And I think when we get caught up in worrying about the things that are less desirable to us, the more we miss what's going on in life. Uh, the second thing is, is ch check on your health. Know your family history. Uh, get, get a genetic test. Go ask your mom and grandparents, what are some of the things from a health standpoint that have run in our family? Because every family has them. I don't care who you are. I mean, there probably are really healthy people out there that don't go through a lot, but if there is something, if, there, if there's breast cancer, if there's high blood pressure, diabetes, get that stuff looked at and get yourself checked out. Even if you don't have any problems, cool, but you always need to know your medical status and the things that run in your family, the things that are in your DNA that could cause issues. Because the, the sooner you deal with them and embrace them, the sooner you can you know, work to put those things back and keep them where they are. And you can work on having a quality of life, even if you have diabetes, high blood pressure. Learn how to keep those things at bay so where they don't affect you. Uh, they that they, they do affect you uh, the least amount possible. And knowing your history, knowing what's in your body, what what you were born with, will help you out with that. Um, don't be scared to find out those things. I think that's when it hits you hard, and you have no idea what to do, and you're navigating. Uh, 
areas that you have you don't you don't have any information about knowing them getting the information knowing not what not even just what medicines don't i'm not saying stay away from medicine medicine is a blessing just like everything else is but know some of the natural things that you could do especially if you aren't if you're in a place where they're not going to affect you well diabetes runs in my family i probably need to watch uh my glucose I mean, I don't have diabetes and I wear a glucose monitor, continuous glucose monitor just to track what I'm eating because diabetes is something that runs in my family. And so it doesn't affect me later down the road while I'm trying to keep my kid, my this brand new kidney. The only kidney I have as healthy as possible. Um, I'm watching the things that I'm eating to, to keep those spikes from happening. And, 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 and diabetes is just one thing from glucose spikes. I mean, there are mental uh, ramifications physical ramifications, you're talking about blood, all this stuff um, from these blood spikes and stuff going up and down. And, 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 it, and a lot of it happens naturally, but if you can control it with what you're eating, the things you're putting in your body, get information on that stuff. Know what's going on with your body, your genetics, your DNA, then start looking at foods and supplements and medicines and natural things that you can put in your body to help keep those things from being a hindrance in your life. And then if they become one, you you know what to do, you're ready for it, you can still have a quality of life. Um, that's the big thing I'm putting on everybody um, is knowing what could happen, kind of know what could happen and have a plan and be prepared and just form your daily life around it. Um, there are gonna be some things that you love to do and, and love to put in your body that you're gonna have to stop doing. If you care about longevity, you'll do it. If not, you'll continue. And then you'll just have to face those ramifications or consequences and pull through the best way you can. You know what I mean? But don't wait until something messed up happens to try to get your life in order. I would I would do it now. And a lot of people don't talk about that stuff just because everybody kind of wants to keep it. If, if I don't think about it, it's not going to happen. And that's just not how it works. It's called uh, putting your head in the sand and keeping it there, right, Brian? Yes, that's exactly <laughs> what it is. Yeah, so awesome, man. Um, we're going to end it right there. I know you've probably okay. got a full schedule the rest of your day. Got a lot going on. So um, before I do a quick outro and I let you go, um, if people want to reach out to you, if they want to connect with you, um, yep. where, where can they do that? Anything else that you want to leave with us, go for it. And then I'll do a quick outro and that'll be a wrap, Brian. Okay, cool. Yeah, if you want to get in contact with me, my social media it's underscore Coach B, that's C-O-A-C-H-B-E-E, -E, numerical one. All right, so underscore Coach B one. That's my Twitter and my Instagram handle. Um, you DM me, you have any questions or you want to talk a little shop, just jump in my DMs. I'm usually pretty good at getting with you. It might not be that day. It might be two weeks when I actually go on and check, uh, you know, the hidden message or whatever hidden places Instagram or Twitter has. I, I can't keep up with it. But when I see it, I'll respond as fast as I can. Um, and then, uh, you know, I, I put workouts and try to put motivational stuff on there too. If you're looking for any of that, um, those are the best ways to get in contact with me. Cool. All right, Brian, uh, I'm going to do a quick outro, then I'll let you go. But uh, thank you so much for coming no, on. Thank, thank you for having okay. me. All right. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. Okay, cool. All of you who are tuning in to another episode of Curious and Candid, I just want to say thank you so very much. I appreciate all of you. I value you, and I'd love to connect with you. If you guys would like to connect with me, there's a couple places that we can do that. First place is Instagram, Curious and Candid Podcast. 
The second place is just through email. If you want to shoot me an email, that email is curiousandcanonpodcast at gmail.com. Before you guys take off today, uh, do me a huge favor. Please subscribe to Curious in Canada on iTunes. And if you're enjoying these conversations, uh, please leave us a five-star rating and review as well. And if you're interested in holistic lifestyle coaching, you can check out my website, which is Awaken Training and Nutrition. Again, thank you so much to all of you for tuning in to another episode of Curious and Candid, and we'll catch you on the next episode.